He is risen. Is in response, he is risen indeed. (laughs) He is risen indeed, yes. It is such a blessing to be here on Resurrection Day. Hallelujah. Mm. I love Resurrection Day. Because we get to celebrate Jesus, as we should be doing every day. But especially on Resurrection Day, we get to celebrate Jesus. I'm appreciative of the opportunity of being here and speaking to you guys and to encouraging you guys because that's all I hope to do is just to encourage one another as I'm encouraged myself with the word of the Lord. I love the word of the Lord. I love to be able to dig into it. I love to be able to just spend time meditating and going over and doing all these things. And and was it Festus that said to Paul, much learning has made you mad. I kind of feel like that at times. You just study and study and study and study. and You have so much in you that you don't really, it it gets hard to figure out what you want to do and where you want to go. All right, I want to start my time. I forgot to start my time. There we go. Father, we just thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity to stand before your people, Lord, speaking of your word. Lord, I ask that your word would come alive like never before, that I would receive revelations that your word would give to everyone who needs something, just what they need, just where they are, just how they need it. Amen? Amen. Okay. Our subject for today is, Oh, What a Savior. And as I was doing this, And putting it together, I wanted to praise God, to glorify him, to raise Jesus up higher. And as I'm doing it, I I realize that this is now a series. And it's a series because the last time I was able to stand before you guys, what happened was my subject was the greatest story ever told. And I found out that this is just like part two of the greatest story ever told. Now, the greatest story ever told was in movie form, like three, four hours. So I'm nothing if not ambitious. We're not going to be before you quite that long today. So we just have a thesis, and that thesis is that we serve a God who wrote a story And the story that he wrote, he knew the finish of it before it ever started. A lot of times what happens if you see writers, writers will write a story and they'll know the end from the beginning, but they're in control of the entire story. The difference with our God is he's not. For him to have a relationship with us, we had to be free will agents. So we serve a God that put something into action where we had an opportunity to make decisions to do what we chose to do. But in spite of all of this, the God we serve knew what we were going to choose, how we were going to choose it, and he had an answer before we ever made the decisions that we made. 
Oh, what a mighty God we serve. Is that absolutely amazing? I think so anyway. Amen. So what we're going to do today, we're going to talk about three basic subjects. Number one, we're going to talk about our need for a Savior. And everybody knows we need for need a Savior. But why was it that we needed a Savior? Because we owed a debt that we could never pay. So we'll start off with Genesis uh, 2, 16 and 17. So we are actually almost going through the entire Bible at warp speed. Thank you. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, clearly we know where this is going, and we know what happens here. Mealy mouth old Adam. (laughs) Instead of doing his job, ended up going along with Satan and eating of the fruit. And because of that, sin entered in. Amen? We agree. We don't condone, but we agree, okay? So if we go back or forward to John eight thirty one. Then Jesus said to those of the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendant, and never have been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Alas, there it is. Anybody who commits sin is a slave to sin. We were in bondage from the beginning with Adam. We are a slave to sin. And the slave does not abide in the house forever, but the son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, I love this part. Now, at this point, The Israelites have been in bondage for about to just about everybody. The Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and right then they were subjects of the Romans. So the guy that said to him, how can you say that the truth will make you free? We've never been slaves to anybody. They've been slaves to everybody. So my faith for that is bondage to sin leads to deception. How deceived deceived are we today when we look at our society? We're in bondage. We believe false news. We believe pretty much everything we hear, we see, that comes across our eye gates, our ear gates. Why? Because we are deceived. And the only thing that can have anything to do with our deception is the grounding and rooting of the word of God. <clears throat> Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. In as much as, I'm sorry, in as much then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, 
and release those through fear of death were, at, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So because of our Savior coming and his dying, he freed us from the curse of the law. I want to talk a little bit about what I'll call types and shadows of a Savior. When we look at the Bible, the Bible is a love letter from our God to a finite, bound group of beings who thinks we know a whole lot, but in the big picture, we really don't know a whole lot at all. God says that your thoughts are not my thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. So when we look at the Bible, to me, it's like a tapestry. Now, I'm not a crafter or anything, and I've never done tapestry or needlework or things like that. But I've seen some from both sides. And if you look at the underside of a tapestry, it looks like a big old mess, right? Knots here, the colors here, everything else. Well, that's kind of how the Bible is, like a tapestry. And usually, or a lot of times, we look at it from the wrong side. We don't see the beauty in what the grandeur of the Bible actually is. And what I want to do is encourage us to dig into the Word of God, to read the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to meditate on the Word of God, that it will become truth to us, that it will become a grounding to us, that it will become a plumb line. When we look at life, when we look at what goes on in life, we would look at it by the Word of God. Because after all, that's the only way we have of understanding what really is going on in life. Now, usually you talk about things you know. So one of the things I I know a little bit about are directions. I might not always give you the right directions. (laughs) But sometimes that's just for a little fun for me. But with directions you have, when you're on the road, you have road signs. Okay, now, not talking to the guys, because guys generally don't do directions. (laughs) Right? Frontier spirit. We have frontier spirit. So we want to go out there and we want to explore. We want to find out our own way. Just tell me, is it east, west, north, south? And make sure I have enough gas and I'll get there. Amen? (laughs) At least that's me. Give me enough gas and I will get there eventually. I might have to go around the planet one time, but I'll get there. So when you have road signs, the Bible is like road signs. And the road signs are pointing to a certain thing. And one of the things that the road signs of the Bible point to is one person, and that is Jesus. You know, I was an old school kind of guy when I traveled. I used to do maps. So we had Rand McNally. Anybody remember Rand McNally? And what was the problem with Rand McNally? The problem was 
it was big. Well, it was kind of compact because it was like a book, but, and you could turn in, I used to put it in the saddlebag of my motorcycle so it would be with me and everything. So, you know, it was good. But the problem was it had to be up to date. So I found myself every year getting a new Ram McNally. Because if you didn't and you're going somewhere, all of a sudden it's like, uh oh, this road doesn't actually exist anymore. So you have to have updated information. Today we've got GPS. Thank you, Lord. Well, we've got GPS on steroids. Because as a guy, I remember the original GPS. And what was the problem with the original GPS? Data information. You get a GPS and you had limited data and you had to upgrade your GPS. It was sort of like the old um, computer term, garbage in, garbage out. If you didn't have the right info, you didn't get the right info or you didn't get where you needed to be. So that was one of the problems that we used to, ha- used to have with that. And, you know, that maps versus GPS is almost like Bible versus the Holy Spirit. Bible maps, Holy Spirit, GPS. Okay. But if you don't know the Bible, you might be hearing us spirit that might not be the Holy Spirit. So how do you tell? Get in the word of God. Amen. So we want to talk about types of Christ. Throughout the Bible, we see examples of Christ. Those who have characteristics of Christ. So actually what they're doing is they're pointing us towards Christ. If we look at 1 Peter 3.18, and we'll go to 21. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we see that Noah was a type of Christ. And we see that that baptism also represented something as well. And that was us being cleansed from our sins. If we go on to Joshua 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. I love that term. The servant of the Lord. You know, I I like, you just say, Keith, the servant of the Lord. Yeah, I like that. Amen. Amen. Mm, mm, mm. All right. After Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over to the Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness of this Lebanon, as far as the great river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, 
to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall stand, shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As it was with Moses, so it will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. And this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe, you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid, nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you. Okay. Here's the question. What does Joshua need to do? And be of uh, good courage. Be courageous. How many times does God tell him to be courageous? If God tells you to do something one time, we should do it. But if you're hearing it three times, maybe you should be paying attention. But in these verses, it is a wonderful set of instructions. We hear God actually repeat the very same thing that he has said to Moses, to Joshua. So we see that Joshua also is that type of Christ as he is now the mediator for the children of Israel. If we go to Exodus, we see that Moses is another type of Christ. Exodus 19.3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people of the earth. I'm sorry, above all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So we see God calling Moses up to Mount Sinai. He's talking to him and he says, look, you guys, you're a special people. All right. You're a tribe of priests. And what do priests do? Priests generally will go into intercession for the people. So now we see Israel's call to be an intercessor. Once again, another type of Christ, someone who goes before somebody else. But the strange thing is that we see not only is Moses used as a type of Christ, but the children of Israel. Um, they were to have acted as priests and intercessors to the rest of the world. Alas, this part never comes to pass. Hebrews 8, 7 through 8. 7 and 8. 
For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So now he makes, he says he's going to make a new covenant because the first one couldn't be fulfilled. Why couldn't the first one be fulfilled? Because for it to be fulfilled, you would have to be perfect. There's no way that we can be perfect. It's the whole idea of the law being a mirror. When you get up in the morning, you look at the mirror. How many of you like what you see when you look in the mirror? The mirror gives you an opportunity to understand you are not all that. And get it together. Unfortunately, we can't get it together. So because we can't, we need or we needed a savior. So we see that also it says that Israel will be called again, but because of our Lord, we also, all of us, get to be included in that whole idea as the church of God. So we see that Israel's first loss actually becomes our gain. They lost their priesthood because the first covenant required perfect adherence. But we have a perfect intercessor. And that's why we get a, to be a part of the big picture. First Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once again, we see that special people. Okay? And the word special there is, in some um, translations, used peculiar. Okay? And I always used to have a problem with the whole idea of peculiar because peculiar always kind of meant strange, but as you look at your definitions and you look at the original, in the Greek, this, thing, this word for peculiar means a possession. It means that we are uniquely possessed by God. We're peculiar. I'll take that peculiar. All right, so now we want to start to talk about some of the shadows of Christ, the things that foretell his coming. And it's interesting because for me, in preparation, I'm looking, I'm thinking about shadows. And one of the things we need to understand as I talk about shadows and I talk about types, this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination. And what I'd like you guys to do is to think about the types of Christ that you can in the word of God, those who who exhibited the uh, attributes of Christ to think about the shadows, the foretelling of when Christ would come. And, and I woke up this morning and it hit me after spending, I don't know how long, how long preparing for this. The first two examples to illustrate or, or, or to attempt to put forth my thesis, I forgot. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I'm running downstairs and it's like, I'm on the computer trying to include these, and I think I got them in. So 
when we talk about shadows, last time when we did the old talk about the greatest story ever told, I talked about the angel of the Lord. So when you talk about the shadows, the angel of the Lord was the pre-incarnate Christ. It was Jesus who was doing stuff on the earth before he came in a fleshly form. So I'm just going to give you a couple references here. Uh, Genesis 16, 7 uh, through 11, Genesis 22, 11 and 15, Exodus 3, 2, and Numbers 22, 22 through 35, which actually has 10 references of the angel of the Lord in it. So when you guys have some time, take a look. Okay. All right. The first sacrifice. Shadow of Christ. Genesis 3, 21, 22. And this was the one I forgot, or one of the ones I forgot. And I think, actually, Pastor made reference to it last week. Okay. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So why did God make tunics of skin? Well, because... God came looking for them, walking in the cool of the day, and all of a sudden he couldn't find Adam nor Eve. And when he finds them, he said, well, what's the deal? So, well, they said, well, Lord, we hear from you. Why did you hide from us? Because we were naked. Huh? You were naked? I created you naked. I didn't give you clothes. What happened here? Because sin entered in, the word says they, they realized that they were naked. So did God give them clothes because they were naked and they needed to be covered up? I don't think so. They got clothes because what was required to cover sin? Blood, a sacrifice. Something had to be sacrificed. So God sacrifices an animal. They get a wardrobe out of it. But their sin is covered. So that's the first shadow of Christ. Because again, all that is is a road sign to the coming Christ. Jesus has to come. Okay? If we go to Genesis 4, 3. And in the process of time, oh, and I'm sorry, Daryl, you didn't get those. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Hmm, I stopped there. But Abel brought an animal. Why did he bring an animal? This was a sin offering. Okay, We see there that for sin... To be covered, once again, you had to present blood, pointing to Christ. Prophecies are shadows. An example of a prophecy, Deuteronomy 32.43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servant and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and for his people. Here we see just one of the many prophecies talking about the coming of Christ and his mission. 
when we think about prophecies of Christ, how many can we list? There are events that act as shadows of the coming Christ, like the Passover. In the 12th chapter of Exodus, we see the Passover instituted. God tells Moses and Aaron when and what food portions, but look who appears when God starts to talk about what they eat. Exodus 12, 5 and 8, 5 through 8. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. A lamb without blemish. That would be the Pascal lamb. Who else was a lamb without spot or blemish? Christ. Now now you shall keep it the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat, where they eat it, for they shall eat the flesh on the night roasted with fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Now we see the lamb was killed at twilight. When Jesus was killed, it basically became twilight. All right, the blood was put on the doorposts and lintel, as well as one, uh, as well as all the other blood used in the Old Testament, was for the covering of sin. The blood that Christ shed on Calvary was for the cleansing of our sins. Eating the lamb's flesh was preparation for the children of Israel for freedom. John six fifty three fifty four. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Eating the Savior's flesh and drinking his blood is the ultimate liberation. The children of Israel were just going into freedom, but they were still in bondage because of Christ. We are eternally free. The supremacy of our Savior. And I've got a a, a quote from Got Question, Bible Questions Answered. If you got the software, you might as well use it, right? The supremacy of Christ is a doctrine surrounding the authority of Jesus and his God nature. In the simplest of terms, to affirm the supremacy of Christ is to affirm that Jesus is God. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines supreme as the highest in rank or authority or highest in degree of or quality. In essence, there is none better. The supreme of something is the ultimate. Jesus is the ultimate in power, glory, authority, and importance. Jesus' supremacy over all is developed biblically primarily in Hebrews and Colossians. So from Colossians, we're going to do 115. And it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now the word for firstborn, 
And Pastor, you would have loved my slides because I actually had the Greek there. So, you know, I know how you love to read using the Greek. But the Greek word is prototokos. And, you know, Pastor's right. If you look at it, you know, you can sound it out by the Greek letters. And, you know, you just have to know the Greek letters. And I know capital Greek letters, not so much the lowercase. So prototokos basically means or it's pertaining to or existing to something else. Existing first, existing before. Existing before all creation or existing before anything was created. It is possible to understand, okay, as superior in status. That is from uh, Lo and Nadia Nida, I'm sorry, which is a Greek helps. So I, I, I quoted it, so I got to give you the <laughs> citation, right? AP style? Okay. So what happens is when you look at what the Jehovah's Witness will do. They use this as doctrine to say that Jesus was the firstborn. In other words, Jesus was created. So he's not God. He's a little g, God. But when we understand in the Greek, it means Jesus existed before creation. He wasn't created. He was here before creation. That kind of blows their argument out of the water. If you've ever talked to them, and the one thing you go to that gets the biggest rise out of them is when you go to John 1.1. 1, 1. So if we've got John 1.1 1, 1 queued up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing that was made was made. We know when it says, the Word became flesh and was God, not little g, big g, deity, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is God. That's why I love the original language. There are times you cannot make mistakes when you get into the original language. Let's go back to our Colossians in sixteen eighteen, or I mean verses 16 through 18. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, once again, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Any difference from John 1 1? So, how can you get these things so wrong when you talk about our Savior? Over and over again in the Word of God, it says, He is preeminent. He is God. So, from these verses, we see that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment or culmination of all the types and shadows that were pointing to His coming. If we look at Hebrews 10, 1 through 14. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come 
and not the very image of the things. So, once again, it's telling you that the law was just a shadow. It was a coming attraction. Okay, when you go to the movies, you gotta you love the coming attractions. That's the first testament, coming attractions, the coming of Christ. Um, coming of the very image of things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. So the slicing, the dicing, the cutting, and all that goes on with the priest. And can you imagine what a dirty job this was, what that must have been? Like, you know, they had their little outfits and everything else and the white linen and every. But what did the white linen and, you know, they didn't have any shouting. They didn't have, you know, all the, the miraculous stuff we have today that we can get things. But when's the last time you tried to get blood out of something? So you're talking about how much slicing and dicing and everything did these little outfits look like just to cover sin? But it never would make them perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have had no more conscious of consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of every sin, of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats takes away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor have pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies were made his footstool for for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So once again, we'd say, if God says something one time, we're supposed to pay attention. But how many times has he just repeated the same thing over and over and over again in those verses that we just read? At least three times each, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. Seven. Because I sat there, one, two, yes, seven times he does it. Okay. Once again, it's about Christ alone. He is our only path. That's why when I look at the word of God, 
I see God's plan for us. I see God's plan of salvation and restoration and all that he has for us, all that he intends for us. And I want to encourage us to continue to get into the word, to be diligently, to be diligent as we pursue God and all that he has and all that he reveals to us in the word of God. If we never open it, we never get it. And as we open it, we should be seeking him and asking God, reveal, reveal it to me. Help me to see it. Help me to understand. That's my constant prayer when I read the word of God. As I read things over and over again, I continue to see things that I never saw before. It's like, whoa, I didn't see that. No, it's kind of funny when we were through our daily reading and and a couple weeks back we were back in Hebrews again and Miss Ethel made a comment. She said, ooh, Hebrews, we're in Hebrews again. I love Hebrews, okay? And I use a lot of this message came from Hebrews. But the shouting part of Hebrews, I didn't even get a chance to get to. Okay? I didn't get a chance to get there. Oh, the greatest story ever told, part three. Could be. Give me a chance to, front, to stand in front of you, and it will be the greatest story ever told. Because the Bible is indeed the greatest story ever told. But the thing about it being a story, the greatest facts ever told, the greatest owner's manual ever told. If we want to know how we should be living our lives, if we want to know how we will prosper, you know, so often we look at what's going on today and and everybody is all wired up about COVID and everything that's going on. But ultimately, this is a temporary situation. The real main event isn't here, isn't now, isn't in this flesh suit. We all get a new body. You know, I don't know about some of you guys, but, you know, sometimes this flesh suit I'm wearing, you know, it's like, oh, oh. You know, you wake up, I wake up and I hear my dad. Oh, dad. But we get a whole new body with no pain. We get to be with our Lord. That's what we are looking to. That's what we're looking for. So being here, not a big thing. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord. We give you all the honor and praise. We give you all the adoration. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to stand before your people to proclaim your word, God. Mm, Thank you, Lord. We just honor you in all that we do. We're praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. I've had a good time. I've enjoyed the opportunity just to prepare So I get to sit down and read some more and sit down. And and then when you get to it, it's like, okay, so I got to leave this. I got to leave this. I got to leave that.